You may be seated. And some love to all the young adults, because I know there's like 14 birthdays, right? So yay, all the young adult June birthdays. Awkward clap. Awkward clap. Sorry, Carrie. Carrie's face, the cringe, bro, is like your worst nightmare. It's a double awkward clap. So even when you have a great reader like Hannah and Ben Allison in the first service, reading the scripture with, you know, some gusto, don't you feel like you just heard that, but you have no idea what you just heard? That's because this is one of the most tightly packed paragraphs in all of Paul's writings. And we've got 30 minutes to deal with it. Now, I was thinking this week about about Father's Day and just appreciating the honor of being a father, appreciating my own dad and father-in-law. And there's always that question of like, what do I get? What do I get the man who has everything and yet still wears boxer shorts that are 40 years old? <laughs> what do I do? What, what gift do you get your dad? You know, not another tie. By the way, if you're asking for me, it's simple. It's a little thing called queso. You might've heard of it. It's not that hard. And what do we, you know, what do you get dad? And I think if you ask most dads, what they really want is they want quality time around a good meal. And that is what Paul is serving up for us this morning. This is steak. This is the stake of the word of God. And after a couple chapters now on the problem of man's sin, both for the Gentile and the Jew, the universal problem of our self-love and worship, we come to this beautiful phrase in verse 21. Turn over and look at it with me or open your Bibles. Verse 21, but now. All right, stop. That but now is special. Phraseology there has implications in Paul's theology, but now Christ has come. But now a new age has dawned. So it's not just about you and Jesus in your closet and your, the prayer you prayed to get your fire insurance. It's about Jesus has risen from the dead, sin is conquered, and all things have now begun to be made new. And the justice of God, the righteousness of God will spread to all the earth, through the people of God, the church of God. There's a lot of talk about what's going on in the world. Remember, last week, the fastest growing church in the world right now is in Iran, and Cuba's a mess, and there's tension with China. But man, when I hear Lee pray and Jacob give his report, you know, I'm not so worried about all of those things, because God is at work justifying us in Christ and sending us out to be the hands and feet of his justice in the world. And if we learn one thing from this passage today, it's that God, our Father, the giver of good gifts, will prevail. So Paul brings us into this second of four movements in the symphony of Romans. Movement one was about sin. This next one, five chapters, chapter four all the way up to eight, is an exploration and an unpacking of what is this good news How is this good news? Who is it for? And what does it mean for us in Christ Jesus? Paul's going to deal with some big stuff. Justification, a legal term. But paired with the idea of God's righteousness revealed in the gospel, justification means this. How do we stand as those who are needy and broken in the right? How can we be in the right with God? Not merely forgiven, And now welcome back into the home as servants, 
but in the right and righteous before God. And then sanctification, we already sang about it. It means to be set apart or to be made holy. So we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and now we are called to live as those who reflect the true things about Jesus in our world. To understand all this, we do have to back up to the first movement, right? The the first movement about the problem of our sin. Put it in an argument as follows. All sinners are in need, and guess what? All of us sin. So the court verdict is in. Paul uses all these legal terms. To be honest, it can be a little bit annoying because it's foreign to us, but you have to remember Paul is a missionary, not an armchair theologian. And those in the great city of Rome would have been well accustomed to not only the courts, but the jargon of the legal system. So Paul uses these words to draw us to, first of all, a difficult reality. That is that it is man, us, not God, who is in the dock. The verdict is rendered. We are guilty. And so based on that first movement, look, it's personal to us. It's about a personal savior, a good father who knows you by name. After that first movement, we're not meant to be, you know, beat up and trodden down. And the last thing we all need in our lives, especially in the church, is more guilt. We don't need more church guilt. But we do need a reality check. And so we should be welled up with this, this, this question, this cry. Okay, we're in the dock. We're in trouble. But, but something must be done, right? Something must be done. Because God is holy and he's made promises. Now, this was the very thing that Jewish scholars in that second temple period, 400 years of silence from the closing of the Old Testament canon in Malachi to Jesus were wrestling with. Israel has obviously failed to keep the law and in that sense become a second Adam, a light and revelation to the nations. Israel has failed, but but God's not failed. God has made his promises. And so something must be done. And this text, this text puts an exclamation point on this. God must do it. God must do it. He must do it for us. He must do it for our needs and our challenges and our joy. And God must do it for the world. He justifies us. That is, he sets us in the place of the right, not by our works, but by faith. And faith in what? Faith in the faithfulness of another. Jesus, who is the Christ. Yeshua, the Savior, who is the Christos, the Messiah, the one who was sent to do all that Israel could not do, that the pagans could not do, God has done it. And so the text is underlined by this question. Here's what Paul's trying to deal with here. You hear this paragraph and go, whoa, dude. And I realize I'm talking very fast. You should be used to that by now. I will try to slow down for some of you the best I can. But it's not my fault that Paul packed all this in here. Take it up with him. The question that he's trying to unravel is how? All right, we're justified by grace through faith because of the work of the faithful one, Jesus. But how is this possible? That's what's underlying the text, but here's what's driving it. Don't miss that beautiful little word that Paul uses again in Ephesians chapter 2 when he speaks of grace. 
gift. Because I think the main point of this text is this. The Father gives good gifts to us. All of Paul's writing and intricately packed theologizing, which leads him to erupt in praise and doxology, it's all driven by this. To put us, the people of God, in humble awe of our God and his love for us. The Father gives good gifts to us. And I want to unwrap this for us this morning in four different ways. The first is this, that the Father gives good gifts to us and we need those gifts. I am well aware that even talking about fathers, even thinking about Father's Day is really hard for some of you. For some of you, it's, it's pretty easy. Maybe you, you grew up and you had a good dad and he loved you and you loved him. And let me just say in brackets there, even if that's the case, as a father, I am not the Christ. And even if you had a good dad, he is not the Christ. But some of you didn't. Some of you didn't at all. Some of you grew up with neglect or apathy, indifference, perhaps even abuse. And so this idea of God being a father right out of the gate is difficult. For others, maybe there's a sense in which, okay, it's Father's Day, but the, the epitome of being a father is it's not about me. That's what it means to be one. Might as well call it Mother's Day 2.0. We go out to lunch after church. And yet we need the fatherly gift of God to us. Why? Here's why. Because Paul asks this question of his hearers. How can a perfectly good and holy God, who is perfectly just, remember righteousness, that juicy Old Testament word means covenant justice and faithfulness. How can a perfect just God bring us, unjust, self-loving sinners, into his midst if the law and keeping the law is an insufficient means of doing that. Because the law is what we've got, and the law is good. So I have to say this at the outset and come back to it again, that the law is not bad. We are meant to obey joyfully the law of God. Paul is not anti-nomian, anti-namas against the law. Paul's not saying the law is bad. No, the law reveals God's character and therefore reveals you reveals your need, the law is wonderful, but it's no grounds, it's no basis upon which we can save ourselves. So the two issues in play are God's holiness and perfection, his sovereign choosing of the Jews, and they had no problem with that, by the way. These Jews had no problem with the idea that out of all the people groups in the world, they were the special chosen ones. The promise was given to Abraham through circumcision. They got the law through Moses. So how can a perfect God who cannot wince at sin bring people to himself if what he's given the Jews, the law is insufficient? Because Israel has a promise. And they all would have known Isaiah 51 very well. In fact, some of the ancient sects in the day of Jesus, for example, those who wrote and collected, they didn't, well, they did write and collect the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Pharisees, of which Paul was a member they were all trying to keep the law in just such a way, just so rightly, so that God would actually be ready and prepared to come and fulfill his promise. Israel has a promise. And yet, just as it is with the pagans, so it is with the chosen ones. They can't keep their end of the bargain. God has said, do this and you will live, do it not and you will die. 
And if you know anything about the history of Israel, it is a sordid history, just like most of yours, where they believe they're all in, and then minutes later, they're all out. I mean, I, I at least love that about Israel. They're not very good at being lukewarm. They're either all in for the worship of Yahweh and the keeping of his law, or they're all out. And they're going to the Assyrian gods and the Babylonian gods and mixing with paganism and all the like. So God is perfect and cannot wince at sin. Israel has a promise, but they haven't kept it. We see verse 20. This is where the rubber hits the road for us. Since the works of the law can justify no human being, why? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And don't you recognize this in your own life? That the more that we see God's law, which reveals his character, more, the more that we are exposed in our need. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing. This is a joyful thing, actually. Because this reminds us, as you grow in Christ, that your self-sufficiency is actually a, a pretty weak crutch. The more the law reveals and exposes us, the more that we see that we do. We need Jesus every minute, every hour. We don't, we don't need little Jesus. We don't need superhero Jesus. We don't know Jesus that, you know, he's the clay and we can mold him into our image. We need the Jesus of the Bible who holds all things together by the power of his word. Because that's the level of need that we really have in our own hearts, if we're honest. The more we try to keep the law, the more our own failures become clear. In this way, I feel like we're sort of like this aspen tree. I read this story, this big, tall, majestic, beautiful old aspen tree. Looked great on the outside, branches, leaves, the whole deal. Then one day, a strong wind came through and bent the young trees, but the big old aspen fell. And no one knew what in the world happened. How is this possible? How did this aspen fall down? Until they walked over, and even though it looked great on the outside, guess what? The roots had the problem of rot. There was a fungus, a mold, that had attacked the root system of the tree. And so even on the outside, where it looked healthy, on the inside it was dying. When the strong wind of God's righteousness came through, it was unable to stand. That is how it is with us according to to the law. The law cannot deliver. It cannot be the grounds of or the starting place for the righteousness that we need. But point two, here's the good news. The father gives us good gifts and the father gets us there. The father gets us there. The law is good, we've already said, but the vehicle is broken. So think of the law in this way as a vehicle to procure the righteousness of God. It's like a Flintstone car. You guys remember those? Flintstone cars, they're made out of like wood and they've got, you know, stone tires. And how does a Flintstone car work? Your feet, your energy. And I think a lot of people, even, even those of us in the church, we're running around trying to be in relationship with God, trying to drive our own Flintstone car. You made it out of wood and stone and you're trying to drive it with the power of your own two feet and you're tired and you don't have much joy and you hear about rest and happiness in church. You hear about trusting Jesus beyond your circumstances, but like me, sometimes you don't feel it and that's because so often we're in the Flintstone car. 
Thinking that if we do more, if we earn more, if we work harder, that will be enough. It's never enough. The Father is the one who has to get us there. And that's part of the how. That's the vehicle of the how. We need new wheels because the car we've got is decrepit. It's a jalopy. It doesn't work. It's got the wrong engine and the wrong gas. And if we try to push it hard enough and long enough and faster, it's going to lead to nothing but exhaustion and despair. So Paul tells us three times in this text, it's not through obedience to the law that you attain these gifts. It's through faith. It's through faith. It's through trusting in God. It's through belief. Three times, he says, we are those who trust to receive. We are those who rest to earn. We are those who are given a gift and can set our work aside. Again, on the question of justification, it doesn't mean that we don't work. It doesn't mean that we don't obey. We do now by the Holy Spirit. But here's the difference. Let me illustrate. We work now because we want to, because we're saved, we're free. We're in the grace of God. We work now. We obey because we want to, not because we have to. And this faith is hard. It's hard to trust God, isn't it? Martin Luther was right. I probably say this every eight weeks. We are hopelessly meritorious. We want to work. We want to earn. We want the scales of human power and principality operative in our relationship with God. Deep down, we want to know that we bring something to the table. You know, I don't, sometimes I don't want the, the daily bread, Jesus. Just trust me, I'll give you a daily bread. You know, a lamp under your feet. Have you seen a lamp from 2,000 years ago? It wasn't very many lumens. There's tiny little candle lamps. All right, you get to see one step in front of you as you walk by faith. I don't want daily bread, Jesus, sometimes. I want Costco, Jesus. I want Costco. I don't want daily bread. I want the next two months of bread with enough preservatives in it that it will last two months and look the exact same from the day I bought it. And I think so often in our, in our works and in our, in our meritoriousness, we come in that posture. And no, that vehicle is broken. That's a Flintstones car. It's going to get you nowhere but tired. Instead, it is by faith. It is by gift. It is by trust in the finished work of another. And so in that way, this word faith in the Greek but according to Paul's Jewish background, can also be translated faithfulness. You see, our trust and our hope, gift though it is, is in the faithfulness of Jesus who perfectly remained faithful. And so one part of the how is God going to justify sinners is through the vehicle or the instrument of faith. The other part of the how is the what? What do we get? What are the gifts that God provides? And so we need God's gift. The Father gets us there. And then what? He lavishes gifts upon us. The Father gives good gifts to us. And man, I wish, I wish we had time to go through each of these. Redemption, propitiation, you know. Uh, what's the other one here? Divine forbearance. There's like 10 more in there. A week at a time. But I want to summarize the how of reception is faith. And the what of the gifts is something that should cause us to well up with joy. What does faith deliver? I know there's a lot of big words here, guys. And it's very easy for these words to become abstract to us. You know, justification. 
righteousness and such. But I think Paul would have us see here that that this isn't just an intellectual exercise so that we can learn the big five-syllable words of the faith. This answers the very problem that is the core and the root of our separation from God by inheritance and by choice. And what God is done, has done, and is doing to bring us back to himself and to lavish upon him his gifts, lavish upon us his gifts, is nothing short of incredible. Consider 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I love what St. John says here. He says, Behold, behold the love of the Father, that he has called us sons and daughters of God. So not only does the Father get us there, but when he gets us there, he lavishes gifts upon us. A couple things to notice in the text. The first is freedom. How does God bring to us the freedom that we need in our life? Freedom. Freedom from all the lies and all the voices and all the stress and all the anxiety and all the little G gods that, that tempt us with broken vessels, empty wells. He redeems us. Now in the Roman mind, this would have had the idea of buying someone back from their indentured servitude. And so you see the word uh, in Greek, doulos, slave, bond servant. And bond servants could be bought out of their bond servitude for a certain amount of money. But again, if you miss Paul's Jewish background and how Jewish Paul was and how deeply Paul understood the story of God's redemption through the people of Israel, you miss about 90% of Romans. And I think in our sort of like post-enlightenment Western 2019 deal, we tend to read Romans from a pretty, you know, juridical, Roman, uh, rational standpoint. That's all true, but there's a lot more going on. So when Paul talks about redemption, he's actually pointing these people back to the reality of the Exodus. Paul turns back to the Jews. Most of the folks in the church in Rome would have been Jews who had believed Jesus was the Messiah, some God-fearing Gentiles, and some Gentiles who came in through paganism, but mostly Jews. And when they heard the word redemption, they wouldn't have thought of some obscure legal term. They would have thought of what it meant for their forefathers to be rescued from the slavery of Egypt, to walk through the waters of the Red Sea by faith with nothing but a lamp to your feet, while those who were working hard in their Flintstone cars got crushed by the waters. Paul would have you know that Jesus Christ himself is the new exodus. He is the new freedom for the people of God. That means whatever is in your life right now, whatever is in your past, whatever your future might hold, there's freedom. Because Jesus himself is the new exodus. Then Paul moves on to forgiveness, and he uses this huge word, propitiation. Now, I've done a lot of like Bible school and seminary, and I feel like almost until this last week, I've still struggled to understand what propitiation means. Now, I understand what propitiation means because it's a word that simply means, you know, one who receives the wrath, the just wrath wrath of another. So Jesus is a propitiation for our sins, in the sense that Jesus himself receives as the sacrifice God's due wrath for our sin, therefore opening up the door for us to be forgiven. 
But again, what I noticed this week is that Paul goes from Exodus language, freedom from slavery, to temple language. And it's so beautiful what he's doing here because propitiation could also be translated in the temple context of the mercy seat. Do you remember the mercy seat? One of the pieces of furniture in God's temple and tabernacle? This is the place the priests would come and sprinkle the sacrificial blood. This was the place that God met his people in mercy and forgiveness. And only the priest could mediate this forgiveness. And the priest could only go in to do this once a year. And here's what Paul is saying. What God has done for you, the gift of God for you in Jesus, is not only your freedom in the new exodus, it is now your full and total forgiveness. And it's not once a year, it's not through the blood of animals, it's not mediated through a priest, it's God's very own son, his blood shed, and he himself is the mercy seat. So if by faith you will do nothing more than come to trust in Jesus, that's enough. No more working. No more running in circles. No more exhaustion. All that Jesus has done to forgive your sins is enough. He's the seat. He's the blood. He's the way between you and God. He's the whole means and place of God's forgiveness for humanity. And what's so amazing about what Paul does in this text is he says, it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for God's chosen people. It's for the whole world. This is a gospel and good news that invites all people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation into this hope. There are those who in history have God's law, the Torah, and there are those who don't. But every, everyone comes equal in need and everyone is met equally with the lavish gifts of God. And then it's almost as if you can hear some folks saying, you know, that's great. Redemption, woohoo! Propitiation, yay! But we just really feel stuck. And I think this morning there's, there's some of us in here, maybe many of us in here, who just, just feel stuck. Feel stuck in life. Maybe even this, this day, this special holiday reminds you of stuckness. It wells up, hurts. It reminds you of broken relationships or something else. You've got other things going on. It's work. It's shame. It's deep wounds. All these things are real to us our stuff, and we feel stuck. Paul turns our attention to verse 26. He says, so that Jesus might be not only the one who is just, the faithful Israelite who perfectly kept the law, but the justifier. And when does this happen? Verse 26 says, at the present time. So we need God's gift. The Father gets us there by faith, and he lavishes his gifts upon us. Redemption, freedom from slavery, forgiveness at the mercy seat of Christ, and also a way to move us forward, even when we are stuck. You have to remember this, so beautiful, that Jesus the Messiah represents us to God and God to us. Therefore, whatever is true of Jesus to God is true for you to God. When God looks down at his son, the father sees a son who's kept the law perfectly, a perfect, obedient, faithful Israelite who died perfectly as the spotless lamb for our sins, who rose perfectly as a conquering warrior and king to put sin to death, and who now sits as the perfect high priest on the throne of God, 
When God looks and sees his son, he sees you. These are the gifts that the Father lavishes on his people and their gifts that are ours now. So it's not just that guilty people get let off the hook. It's so much more than that. It's so much more amazing than that. It's not just guilty people getting forgiven. It's those of us who are constantly and daily in need being put in the right so that now, as Paul says, we become the righteousness of God by the one who is both the just and the justifier. And if these things are true, then the fourth point stands. We are the ones who are to go and to give. We need the gift. The Father gets us there. He lavishes these gifts upon us. So let us go and give. The how is by grace, redemption, propitiation, all of that through faith, and the what now is these two things Paul addresses in the last paragraph. We're to be humble and obedient. We're to be humble and obedient. If these things are true of God's good gifts to us, how can we put ourselves in the world? How can we posture ourselves to Santa Fe, including the people that frustrate us here, as those who give thanks and those who give back? Paul tells us our boasting is silent. If these things are true that Paul has said, we should be the most humble people in Santa Fe. We should see people who are hurt and needy and poor and broken, and our reaction should not be a reaction of judgment, but to fall to our knees in the humility of Christ our Lord and find ways to serve and do and be the justice of God in the world, for he has justified us. Humility. And also, we are those who are called to obey. Again, not because we have to, but now, by grace, because we want to. We uphold the law. And what does that mean? Love God and love your neighbor. And have fun. And do it creatively. And don't be weird. And do it around food. And love God and love your neighbor as God has loved you. So this is the stake. The vehicle is not a Flintstone car. It's a Ferrari. And now we're in a Ferrari eating steak with queso on it. That's what it means that God has lavished upon us these good gifts. The Father's love for us, that we are fully known in our need. God knows all of your Romans 1 through 3. But we are fully loved in the finished work of Jesus, who is the Christ. The Father gives good gifts to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your good gifts to us. Thank you for the steak. Man, and may we spend time chewing and marinating and digesting these beautiful truths. What other God is like this? And we say it with humility, not, not, not an accusation. But what other God is there that that is fully righteous and holy and perfect and strong and sovereign, and yet who puts on flesh to rescue us from our slavery, who dies, sheds his blood, that we might receive mercy, who sends the Holy Spirit, that we might move forward, that, that what is now true of God is true of us, and not by works, not on the condition of how good we are, through the simple gift and the instrument of faith. 
We are so thankful, Lord. Fill us with thanks that we might go and give. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.